Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Liquidware, providing enterprise class management solutions for physical, virtual, and cloud-based Windows desktops. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And of course, also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. It has been announced that IBM is set to split into two companies by the end of 2021. This won't come as too huge of a surprise to those following the company for some time, as they have a tendency to divest some of their lower margin line of business divisions. They previously divested the networking side of the business back in the 90s. Similarly, they divested their PC business back in the 2000s, and more recently, they divested their semiconductors business. Right now, the name of the new company is just listed as NewCo, so it's pending on a new brand. Ars Technica reports that under the spin-off plan, the press release claims IBM will focus on its open hybrid cloud platform, which represents a $1 trillion market opportunity. And IBM state that NewCo will immediately be the world's leading managed infrastructure services provider. This is because NewCo will start life owning the entirety of IBM Global Technology Services' existing managed infrastructure clients, which means about 4,600 accounts, including about 75% of the Fortune 100. Not a bad position to start from. BleepingComputer.com reported this week that Microsoft says that customers who install the optional KB4577062 update for Windows 10 versions 1903 and 1909 will encounter issues upgrading to newer Windows 10 versions on some devices. This update was released on September 16, 2020, with the main highlight being that it enables an IE11 notification to inform users about Adobe's Flash end of support in December 2020. Microsoft explained when updating to Windows 10 version 1903 or 1909 from any previous version of Windows 10, you might receive a compatibility report dialogue with what needs your attention at the top and the error continuing with the installation of Windows will remove some optional features. You may need to add them back in settings after the installation completes. This is caused by the Windows 10 Setup Dynamic Update being unable to download required packages. Microsoft says it is currently working to address this issue with a fix to be available in an upcoming Windows 10 release. Until then, the company advises customers to work around this known issue by re-enabling HTTP access to the internet to the Windows 10 Setup Dynamic Update. And speaking of flash end of support, Adobe released a security update for a critical remote code execution vulnerability in Flash Player that could be exploited by simply visiting a website. 
Adobe states the hackers could exploit this vulnerability tracked as CVE-2020-9746 by inserting malicious strings in HTTP responses when users visit a website. This vulnerability requires an attacker to insert malicious strings in a HTTP response that is by default delivered over TLS or SSL. BleemingComputer.com reports that when successfully exploited, the vulnerability could lead to a crash that allows the attacker to execute commands on a visitor's computer remotely. These commands would be executed under the security context of the user and would not have administrator privileges. Users should install Adobe Flash Player version 32.0.0.445 as soon as possible. And another month, another Patch Tuesday. This one brought fixes for 87 vulnerabilities, 12 of which classified as critical and 74 are classified as important and one as moderate. This batch of vulnerabilities includes six publicly disclosed vulnerabilities, though at this time Microsoft state there is no evidence of exploits for these in the wild. And those six include CVE-2020-1693, 16885, 16901, 16908, 16907. In some good news, there were no zero days patched this month, but there were five remote code execution vulnerabilities, including for products such as GDI, Outlook, Hyper-V, Windows Media Foundation, and Windows TCP IP. And those CVEs are CVE-2020-16911, 16947, 16898, 16891, and 16915. Foxit have addressed a potential issue in their Phantom PDF product where the application could be exposed to use after free vulnerabilities and crash when executing JavaScript in certain acro forms. This occurs due to the use of opt object after it has been deleted by calling field clear items method while executing field delete options methods. Foxit has published updates for its software in both Windows and Mac OS. Those readers running versions prior to 10.1 for Windows and a version 4.1 for Mac ought to download and install the latest versions from the Foxit website. Hackney Council in North London has fallen prey to a cyber attack. The council says it is working with the UK's National Cyber Security Centre and the Ministry of Housing to investigate and understand the impact of the incident. They are asking that residents and businesses only contact them if absolutely necessary and to bear with them while they seek to resolve these issues. Sky News suggests that the G Suite services the council use are still working and staff calling the council's IT support hotline are being instructed to follow the guidance and information in their inboxes. So clearly it sounds like instructions have been provided to employees via their email because luckily they're in the cloud with the G Suite services and their lines of communication are at least still open. This is a pretty fresh story. I saw it as breaking news on Sky News. 
so we'll have to keep some tabs on it to see where it goes. And sticking with a ransomware story affecting a city or a council of sorts, the city of Mount Pleasant has fallen victim to a ransomware attack in the U.S. NBC25 reports that officials said the city's firewall remains secure and they do not plan to pay a ransom. Whatever the hell that means. I mean, you've been breached, buddy. They got past your firewall. I guess maybe they're confident they know that it was through a phishing attack or social engineering, but that's a pretty odd statement to put out there. At this time, it is not believed any personal information has been breached. According to investigators, there was no access to state election computers and all ballot and voter information is secure. Ooh, I hope so. German software company AGT was attacked with ransomware last weekend. The attackers are requesting a ransom of $23 million. According to screenshots shared by bleepingcomputer.com, the attack was carried out by the Klopp ransomware gang, who posted on their leak site that they were able to steal information on employees' passports, health bills, and emails, also publishing a screenshot with a folder tree containing additional information potentially stolen from Software AG. For their part, AG have stated the IT infrastructure of Software AG is affected by a malware attack starting the evening of the 3rd of October. Software AG also says that the ransomware attack only affected its internal network while customer cloud services were unaffected. They have shut down the internal systems in a controlled manner in accordance with the company's internal security regulations, according to their statement. The company is in the process of restoring its systems and data in order to resume orderly operation. It's odd that they would call it malware instead of ransomware. It's also very interesting that bleepingcomputer.com seems to be the go-to place for people to send pictures and screenshots when these ransomware attacks happen. There was a really interesting post on Reddit this week from someone saying they witnessed their first ESXi ransomware. The poster states a customer's environment went entirely offline and all VMs were powered off by the reports that they were getting. Some started to think it was a SAN issue since it was so massive and didn't spare any VMs. Then they saw 200 VMs abruptly shut down and then all files on the data store were getting encrypted. VMDKs, VMX, logs, the whole kitten caboodle. The ransom note was left at the data store level. The attack was directed using a ransomware as a service code because all files were encrypted with the company name on the extension of the encrypted files. The ransom note also mentions the company name directly. The poster states that a Windows 2012 R2 server outside VMware seems to have been ground zero since it had access to the ESXi management URL that's where the mess may have started. This poster implores us all to start locking your ESXi management access because things will get rough and that this customer didn't segregate ESXi management from the VMs. Ars Technica reported this week on a security flaw with Apple's 2T security chips in its Macs that is used for features like encrypted data storage, Touch ID, and activation lock, 
which works with Apple's Find My Services. But the T2 also contains a vulnerability known as Checkmate that jailbreakers have already been exploiting in Apple's A5 through A11 mobile chipsets. So the bad news here is that this is a vulnerability that cannot be fixed. There will be no patch forthcoming. The good news is that in order to jailbreak your machine for this exploit to work, an attacker would need to gain physical access to your machine. So just keep an eye on your MacBooks or your iMacs or whatever you have. And sticking with some Apple security related news, there is a fantastic article on samcurry.net that details how a group of hackers worked a project to go after bug bounties offered by Apple. He goes through some of their logic and methodology and it's really insightful. He does a deep dive on some of the vulnerabilities discovered, but for most, he was not able to disclose. But the good news is they have been patched. In the end, he states there was a total of 55 vulnerabilities discovered with 11 critical in severity, 29 high, 13 medium, and two low. So based on what Apple pay for their bug bounty program, the members on that project must have been paid pretty well, so good for them. Datacenterdynamics.com has reported that the U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or OCC, has fined Morgan Stanley $60 million for failing to properly decommission two wealth management data centers in 2016. The bank failed to properly oversee its contractors and how they wiped data from servers and other hardware. Some customer information remained on the equipment after it was sold to recyclers, but there was no indication that any of the details were misused. The article states plaintiffs in two class action lawsuits filed against the bank this summer claimed the data left on the devices included social security numbers, passport information, and other account information. In a statement, Morgan Stanley said that it had continuously monitored the situation and did not believe that any of their clients' information has been accessed or misused. Moreover, they say they have instituted enhanced security procedures, including continuous fraud monitoring, and will continue to strengthen the controls that they have in place to protect their clients' information. The bank in July offered free two-year subscriptions to a credit report monitoring service to customers whose information may have been at risk. So we saw similar with the Equifax breach in previous years. This week it was reported that Microsoft are set to allow their employees to work from home permanently, or at least in some cases. The Verge reports Microsoft will now allow employees to work from home freely for less than 50% of their working week, or for managers to approve permanent remote work. Employees who opt for the permanent remote work option will give up their assigned office space, but will have options to use touchdown space available at Microsoft's offices. Much like many of our internal IT teams, a few rules that still require access to the company's offices, including those that require access to hardware labs, data centers, and in-person training, will still be required to work on site. Employees will also be allowed to relocate domestically with approval or even seek to move internationally if remote working is viable for their particular role. While Microsoft employees will be allowed to move across country for remote work, compensation and benefits will change and vary depending on the company's own geo-pay scale.
So that's been something that's been coming up a lot lately is people who can work remotely and maybe they're based in Silicon Valley where it costs a lot to live. They're moving to somewhere much cheaper, but they're finding that their employer is then adjusting their pay. And it sounds like Microsoft is going to have a similar policy with their GeoPay scale. The article states that flexible working hours will also be available without manager approval, and employees can also request part-time work hours through their managers. It's pretty interesting, pretty flexible, seems mostly fair too. VMware PowerCLI version 12.1.0 has been released. New commandlets exist for things like vSAN, workload management, and more. Plus, some bug fixes are in there too. In a follow-up to a story I covered last week, this week the awesome Jeremy Moskowitz shared a single screenshot with various labels to illustrate the new group policy object for disabling standalone Internet Explorer 11 that was introduced in the latest Windows 10 Insider build. So to see an illustration of how the various different options are going to work, check out this screenshot and I'll share a link to that with this episode which is episode 146. And you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. It was announced that the CUGC Southwest XL event will be held virtually. Speakers include Mike Streets, Chris Twist, and Scott Lane. There will also be keynote speaker, and it's going to be an all-day event. It will be held on November 18th, and if you're interested, you can register now. I have to say a quick RIP to Exchange 2010, which went end of life this week. I wish that I could say I personally will miss it, but I won't. So last week, I shared a poll on my Twitter account, which is at Rory Mon. Follow me if you're on Twitter. I asked my end-user computing friends how their budget was looking for next year. I'd figured that it was inevitable that all IT budgets would get cut due to COVID fallout, but I'm hearing from some that the continued work-from-home strategy is actually leading to an increase in EUC budgets. So I asked simply, is your EUC budget for 2021 increasing or getting cut? The results of the poll showed that 62.5% said their budget is actually increasing, 37.5% said it's getting cut, and that's with 112 votes. And now, a weekly webinar. I have the honor of co-hosting a webinar with Jeremy Moskowitz, who I just mentioned a little bit earlier during the news, on the topic of five management and security technology trends every Microsoft admin needs to know right now. The webinar will be held on October 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern, which I believe is 5 p.m. Irish time or British summer time. During the webinar, we're going to cover some topics, including moving away from Internet Explorer and onto modern browsers. Pretty topical, considering what I just covered in this episode. Uh, Ransomware prevention as a service. Microsoft XML file association configuration challenges. We're going to go through customizing and exporting start screen layouts, plus more. Should be a pretty cool, relaxed webinar. I've done some research ahead of time, like I do for every episode of the podcast, so we're going to have some context 
behind what we're discussing and some stories that I've actually featured on this podcast as examples and driver of our discussion. It should be fun. I hope you all can join. And I'll share a link for registration for the webinar with this episode, which again, you'll be able to find that link on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 146. And now, this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Everyone's favorite PowerShell scripter, Guy Leach, appeared as a guest on the Thrive IT podcast. I mentioned the Thrive IT podcast on a previous episode, but if you haven't checked it out, it's well worth it. You should subscribe to their channel on YouTube and enable notifications because they go live with the different guests every week, and it's usually pretty interesting and insightful. And this week with Guy was no different. To plug a little bit of my own work, this week I posted a blog on the topic of virtual desktops versus applications. So like published applications, but also just SaaS-based applications. I frame it around a product called Cameo, which I have a lot of experience with as I reviewed it as part of the application virtualization smackdown that I worked with. Ruben, Jurgen, Tam, Chris, and others with in the past. So if you want to find out a little bit about Cameo and also just see my thoughts on virtual desktops versus applications, you can check that out. Thomas Maurer shared a guide on how to reduce costs of your Azure Infrastructure as a Service VMs. Most of this was pretty obvious, at least to me, but having it all written out in a single article is useful. It can prove as kind of like a little checklist to ensure that you're doing everything you can to reduce your costs. Niels Cook shared a blog this week on his site about automating Windows Virtual Desktop builds using Azure Flow. So I've covered products like Cloud Jumper, Nerdio, and more recently the WVD Quick Start. There's a lot being done around automating and streamlining builds and setups within WVD. And this one is pretty cool because it's a custom build using the built-in Azure Flow. So that's pretty cool. The awesome James Kinden blogged again this week on FSLogic's Cloud Cache and his lessons learned in Azure. The good news that it seems like the overhead to run Cloud Cache and its inconsistencies of the past have mostly been resolved. It was a really interesting article to read as someone who didn't really dare to dive too much into the cloud cache yet and stayed on-prem, but now it sounds like it's a good time to reconsider that. And once again, James Rankin has blogged, and this one is on Microsoft Teams on Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops, and it's going to be a multi-series blog post because if you've tried to manage Microsoft Teams in an enterprise environment, you know it's very challenging. That Electron app or just Electron apps in general do not play nice. So if you're currently struggling with managing teams, you should check out this blog post. Stefan Dingmans posted a blog on managing Windows Virtual Desktop with Microsoft Endpoint Manager. Actually, this is also a series of blogs. I think I said on a previous episode of the podcast, I'd be interested to see how Microsoft Endpoint Manager works with non-persistent desktops, as SCCM did not do so well on non-persistent in the past. 
And finally, this last one is not new. It was actually published over two years ago, but I saw Carl Webster recommended it as the best blog on this topic, and I take Carl's word as gospel. And that topic is how to enable SSL and secure XML traffic on Citrix delivery controllers, the easy method. So all you Citrix architects, engineers, and admins out there, that's one for you guys to review. As with every single episode of the podcast, everything I talk about has a reference link, and you can find those reference links on 5bytespodcast.com beside each episode. You can also find it usually in the description for each episode on your podcast platform of choice. It is a little bit weird because some podcast platforms do interpret the hyperlink and allow you to click it and others don't. So you have to copy and paste it out into a browser, which is kind of a pain, but it is there. As always, thank you so much for listening.